This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Monday, June 26th, 2017, from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca, and everything's coming up, Donald. For once, a court, and what's more, it was a big court, the big court, worked with the Trump travel ban to get to yes. Yes! Yes! We can have a temporary travel ban from Libya, Iran, Somalia, Sudan, Syria, and Yemen, unless citizens from those countries have a tie to an American. So that's an exception. Also, they can't shut it down just now. You got to give everyone three days to cancel all their flights, work on different plans, maybe plan a Canadian holiday. But yes, 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 this is the sort of agenda item that Donald Trump had been bragging about having accomplished already. Stuart Varney of the Fox Business Channel got in the mood too. I'll yep. call this a win. A win? It'll be interesting to see what the Supreme Court says about this. For one thing, this ban, it was 120 days for refugees and 90 days for residents of those aforementioned countries. It was a way to tweak the system. The first version of this ban, what you might know as Executive Order 13769, was signed on January 27th. That was 150 days ago. So whatever extreme vetting they were working on should be ready to go, right? Mm-hmm. By the way, if there was extreme vetting that I thought lowered the likelihood of any terrorist attack from any of these nations, I would be for the ban. But I suspect that extreme vetting is, what is the technical term? Not true. Now, almost all the lower courts that have looked at this ban have struck down all or parts of it. Now, you could say, oh, those were only lowly, lowly lower courts. One was even in Hawaii. I would not call that a mainstream state. That state I hear might have even started off as part of Kenya. Or maybe I'm getting my mixed up theories mixed up. So you could say, oh, let's write off the lower courts. They don't matter. But you could also say when all these lower courts, consisting of judges who are appointed by Republicans and Democrats, consistently found that the law didn't hold up to scrutiny, you have to wonder why the highest court would think it does. It's like if a baseball player can't hit in double A, they can't hit in the Southern League, they can't hit in the Texas League, what what are you going to do, promote them and they can't hit in the Pacific Coast League? You would think that he couldn't hit in the major leagues. Although in other news... Some good news for some Tim Tebow fans, especially those that live in Florida. The Heisman Trophy winner has been promoted to high A St. Lucie. Tebow was batting 220 in 64 games for Columbia... 220 for you non-baseball fans is what they call not good. But like much of the travel ban, it's a phenomenon pretty popular among a certain strain of self-identified born-again Christians and believers in miracles. Tebow, by the way, also had seven errors in left field, which may not matter to the Mets, but errors seem to matter to the courts, which is why you haven't seen Rudy Giuliani on TV talking about how Trump asked him to make it safe from discrimination charges. But I guess, like Stuart Varney says, this is, for the Trump administration, just so much winning. Just like Tim Tebow's new team, the Port St. Lucie Mets. They've experienced so much winning, 34 wins so far this year. That is great, 38 losses, but 34 wins, so much winning. On the show today, other big news, the CBO score on healthcare is in. 
yeah, it's still above 20 million. But first, Anne Helen Peterson covers culture for BuzzFeed. She has a PhD in celebrity and a master's in keeping it real. No, seriously, she does have a PhD in celebrity. Her new book, Too Fat, Too Slutty, Too Loud, is a vicious takedown of the Komodo dragon's mating ritual. Actually, it's about several prominent female celebrities, which, as you will hear, makes for a better interview than the Komodo dragon. Anne Helen Peterson, she looks at the world through an amazing prism. Her new book is called um, Too Gross, Too Shrill, Too Fat, Too Slutty, Too Loud, Too Pregnant. I don't know. It has a lot of things on the title. What is the name of this book? (laughs) Too Fat, Too Slutty, Too Loud. Okay, the name of the book is Too Fat, Too Slutty, Too Loud. The subtitle is The Rise and Reign of the Unruly Woman. And every chapter is a story about a woman who exemplifies one of the uh, twos, one of the superlatives of unruliness. Hello, Anne. Thank you for coming in. Very happy to be here. Is this how you naturally look at the world through people, through uh, exemplars of traits? I mean, I would say I I look at the world through the lens of feminism, first of all, but also through the lens of celebrity. That's what my PhD is in, is on the history of celebrity. And so to me... The best way to think about the ideologies that are important to us at a given moment are by looking at the celebrities that we hold up as exemplars. Did you have to sell anyone on that as a PhD topic? (laughs) No, this is the thing. People outside of academia are always like, oh, how do you get a PhD? No, I would understand. I was just wondering if there were a couple examples of pushback at first. Well, I don't have a job in academia, so that should tell you one thing. (laughs) Um, When I was actually there, I saw a hole in media studies, in the study of how not just celebrity, but the way that we gossip about celebrity and the history of that. And so that's how I ended up writing my dissertation on the history of celebrity gossip. Yes. First of all, I think we're supposed to feel bad about it, even though no one does. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, we're shamed all the time, and especially women, because it's very feminized. Yeah. It's a very natural thing. Yeah. And I think that gossiping about celebrities is exact. It maps onto men could be women too, but talking about sports, 98%. I mean, there's such an overlap between yeah. chatter about these people who have who don't care about you and have no effect on your life, but provide entertainment. Yeah. If it's sports, it's one thing, and it has a section in the newspaper. If it's celebrity, it's maybe a little down more. And it's like almost, like the, re, the thing that divides it is in sports, sometimes there's numbers, and statistics are somehow like a legitimating force. Well... <laughs> Let's go right to Hillary Clinton. Okay. That is called too shrill. Yeah. And there are a lot of criticisms of Hillary Clinton that are apt and a lot that aren't apt. And of course, sexism played an ugly role in the election because you went to Trump rallies, (laughs) basically asked people in a way they wouldn't say yes to, are you racist? And is that why you didn't vote for Obama? But with Hillary Clinton, people basically said, yeah, I don't like women. So I was at a Trump rally four days after the Excess Hollywood tapes came out. And I asked women, like, what do you think about this? And the way that they articulated how they think women should be treated, they're like, being patted on the ass like that, that's how I know I'm desirable. You know, like, or if, if my husband didn't say things like that, then I would think there was something wrong with him. It's an actual quote. So that sort of internalized misogyny is very, very strong. And it's not, you know, I don't know if most would necessarily articulate it as I hate women. It's I hate women like Hillary. And yeah. that's a lot of women. Yeah. 
Because that's not just also women like Elizabeth Warren or Maxine Waters. Like, it's, I hate women who don't know their place. Well, it, it's a lot of women, but it's also no one else in the history of humanity. I hate women like <laughs> Hillary who've been Secretary of State and ascended right. to the highest levels of power and have been senator, right. and I get that. But let's just talk about the shrillness because I don't, I wouldn't exactly put my finger on the quality of her voice as being shrill if there is such a thing as shrill. Yet, I don't think she's a great speaker. And there is some blowback to that opinion. I don't think she's a great communicator. In the book, you talk about what charisma means. And for us to say, you know, here are her attributes, here are her demerits. Among her demerits is an inability to be a great communicator that can have a sexist element, but that can also have an accurate element. And so do you think it's fair to say that or is it always tied up with sexism to talk about what kind of communicator she is, and even the vocal qualities of her communication. Well, let me take this back. So one of the things I argue in the book and that you're, you're gesturing towards is that charisma, as we define it now, you know, it's the ability to speak convincingly in public, to, you know, be, per, be a persuading and effective communicator. Yeah. And if too shrill is the word that we use for women who raise their voice to speak in public, right, that's just a way that we describe the tone of a woman's voice when it raises and we use a pejorative to describe it, then women are pretty much excluded from charisma. So let's hear from Rebecca Traster, who is a great journalist. Really, I can't think of a more impeccable source uh, talking about politics and feminism and knowing about Hillary Clinton. Here she was on the WooCast, which is uh, politics and polls. It's hosted by Julian Zelizer and Sam Wang. Before the election, she had this to say. She's gotten a lot of criticism in many cases from people I respect and who I think are like good, strong feminists and think carefully about gender. She gets a lot of criticism for the tone of her voice because when she gives a big speech, she's not a natural uh, big speech giver. (laughs) Um, We can talk a lot about the fact that she is not regarded as somebody who has a lot of charisma or power to inspire on the stump. Um, And one of the things that gets talked about very very often is the fact that she yells into a microphone, which she does. It comes across as uh, grating. And I sit on my couch during some of those speeches in a little fetal position thinking, oh my God, please stop yelling into the microphone, just slower, softer, right? I'm guilty of this as well. Okay, so Rebecca doesn't say, and I bring her up for a reason, She's she blurbs your book. Mm-hmm. You know, Rebecca Traster doesn't say shrill. It seems like she walks up to that line and doesn't say shrill, but what do you think about what she was saying? Because I identified with it, and I thought she was a perfect person to say it. Right, yeah, no, I don't disagree with anything that she's saying there. I think that that word, though, that shrillness and, and that cluster of language that's used to describe Hillary's voice was a way of talking, you know, actually talking about especially for people who didn't like her, talking about their fear of having a woman in power or just like they don't like having women speaking in public places the way that she does. So there's two, you know, I think there's two different arguments going on here, which is like, yes, Hillary would have been a great policymaker and would have, you know, if 100 years ago before we had super public celebrity presidents. Yeah. She could have been a great, you know, right. she could have been like an, like, like that sort of president. Almost exactly the time when women didn't have the right to vote. Yes. She would have been a great women yes, candidate. Totally. Um, <laughs> but yeah, Abe Lincoln, they said, didn't have a great speaking voice. But, you know, people say like, oh, Bernie's charismatic. Yeah. And that's he's not. It's not like that guy doesn't scream into microphones. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and there are all sorts of people who are labeled charismatic because they draw large crowds. And is it because of their speaking style or because of their ideas? Yeah. 
I think there is a thing as too shrill, and it's not just um, subjective. And I think Hillary Clinton probably has it, though probably a lot of people judge her over harshly. I just think we can use a different word for that, right? Mm-hmm. We could say <laughs> I, do, you don't think <laughs> too no matter- ill-equipped for like actually too ill-equipped to be a public president. Okay, right? so she didn't have those tools. But I think the use of that word, specific word, shrill, that was just bandied about in a lot of ways, is a symptom of the misogyny. It's not a symptom of having an actual conversation about her capability as a candidate. Okay, now let's talk about Lena Dunham, too naked. Or is it that Nicki Minaj, Melissa McCarthy, Madonna and Kim Kardashian are not naked enough? No, it's that. So the thing that I talk about in the book is that... There's a difference between nakedness and nudity, and this has been parsed by art historians. So nakedness is like what you and I do like when we change clothes, when we take a shower or whatever. Like it is the unperfected, unclothed body. A nude is what happens. Historically, it's like, you know, how a sculptor would render like the sculpture in front of him or a painter would take the model in front of him and turn it into yes. a painting. Nudeness is what the artist does to the naked yes. body. Or now what the airbrusher does, yes. right? It makes it into a thing that is beautiful to behold. Right. And this is why artists say, you know, or when people say, I think the naked body is beautiful, they right. mean nudes are beautiful. Yes. Nudes are meant to be aesthetically pleasing. Yes. And right. our nakedness appalls us. And that's but, why, you know, I never even thought about this, but when people talk about, you know, what they send on, like, through texts and that sort of thing. It's send me your nudes, yeah. not send me your naked. You perceptively point out she's not just saying, hey, I have every right to put my body out right. there. She knows that her body says things that other bodies don't. Yeah. So she's sort of casting herself to make a point. Yeah. And maybe, who knows, maybe if she had some, um, you know, great pre-airbrushed type body or what we should call as conventionally uh, beautiful body, something like that. Well, like, Maybe I mean, be her, like Allison, Allison Williams's body, mm-hmm. you know, her co-star on Girls, like that nakedness doesn't say anything. And I also think, I mean, this is underrated. I think that Lena Dunham's nakedness is often very funny. She has a funny body. And she <laughs> says that, you know, she's like, I have the body of like a pot-bellied toddler. And so the, the humorous um, component of it is underrated. I find it interesting that so many of the exemplars in your book, and they're just exemplifying these traits, show up either explicitly or you know that they've made public statements that would tear down other subjects. What I mean is, you know, Lena Dunham, uh, who's there exemplifying too naked, she says some dismissive things about chiclet. So that would be, that shows up in the Too Loud chapter with Jennifer Weiner. Or the way Hillary Rodham Clinton played the Monica Lewinsky thing would seem to be striking against your idea of uh, what Nicki Minaj is showing us in Too Slutty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I guess it means that nobody's perfect, but... Yeah, and it also means that, like, the fairy tale notion of a feminist coalition is far from real. Yeah. Uh, The other thing, though, is that a lot of these women also are friends with one another and collaborate with one another, Um, whether that's something like even Nicki Minaj doing a verse on a Madonna song. The fact that both of those things are happening at once shows that there's this... This need for collaboration, but also like a tension between these ideas. Like there's still so many tensions within feminism. Yeah. And and it, they also can be used, you know, the way right. that Taylor Swift, was it a Steinem quote or a Hillary <laughs> quote about the lowest place in hell is for women calling on each other? Right. And when, she used that to like criticize Nicki Minaj. 
I think she used it to rebut a joke that Tina Fey or Amy Poehler made oh, about her. Oh, you're right. But you're st- totally right. But, but it's, you can yeah, use it to st- any of the people yeah. Yeah. that Taylor Swift has mm-hmm. implicitly or explicitly yeah. attacked. So there are two, I think, uh, the two I- there are two icons who aren't in the book because they're often, they're women, very powerful, well-respected women who aren't criticized as too much of anything. Mm-hmm. And they're Jennifer Lawrence and Beyonce. You could probably put others on the list, but I was just thinking... There's always going to be a backlash, but I mean, these are women who probably have the highest Q ratings, you know, Mm -hmm. they're so well loved and so well known. You know, what do they say about unruly women? Well, I think that Jennifer Lawrence's unruliness is fake unruliness. It's like, I eat pizza. Like, that's unruly, right? Yeah. Um, It's performative of authenticity and cool girlness that's not actually unruly in any sort of substantive way. Right. And and also, she speaks to the Lena Dunham chapter because... Sorry to interrupt, but yeah. she speaks to the Lena Dunham chapter because she's so celebrated for not being the typical size, whatever. But right. she, you know, her body no, is. No, she's skinny. Like, yes. whatever. Well, she's, even she's... beyond skinny, it has none of the sagginess that you talked about, right? right? Yeah. It's the firmness. Yeah, and, yeah. yeah. She has, she has the, the supple body of youth. And Beyonce, I think, is a really interesting example. And if I were to write, start writing this right now, she would be a chapter. She would be too political because. I think after Lemonade, and there was backlash from some corners that yeah. like, oh, like, why do you have to talk about this? Like, you know, obviously not from her core fan base, but she made a really interesting decision with her career in that she was pretty apolitical for a long time. And she built up this support and this affection. And then whether consciously or because she felt it was time, you know, or because of things that had happened in the last couple of years, she decided to pivot that. She had accumulated enough goodwill that people were willing to go there with her. Whereas if an artist had come out with Lemonade, like that would not have had the success that it has had. I think it was Grill Marcus who said that mm. every society picks an exemplar of itself. Yeah. And he was talking about Elvis in that way. Yeah. So now that we've become diffuse and we're not one society, is that what these women are doing? Well, so... Star theory, which sounds like it's like astronomy, um, but star theory, there's this idea. My favorite scholar's name is Richard Dyer. He came up with this idea, which I think absolutely explains so much, which is that a star's image. So an image is everything that you know about them. Mm -hmm. Every like, you know, movie they've been in, every speech they've given, every commercial they've been in, their image comes to consolidate these ideologies that are either in flux or in tension or and you know there's anxiety and the ones the stars who are the biggest are the ones who seem to speak those ideologies the most forcefully glamorously perfectly to the most amount of people so the best example that i always use when i was teaching is someone like marilyn monroe really really effectively consolidated you know, reconciled these ideologies of virginity and sexuality. Mm-hmm. She seemed to be proof that you could be the virgin whore. And that is a very 50s ideology. You can look at the way that Playboy magazine tried to represent those same things. I mean, she was on the cover of Playboy magazine, which is that, First issue. you know, sex isn't dirty if it's, you know, if it's free, if it's yep. not repressed. Yep. And that has to do with a lot of the sex studies and Kinsey going on during the 1950s. So, you can really extrapolate a lot by looking at the stars of a given so moment. So stars are our zeitgeist personified. Yeah. Yeah. I, well, I think we're at an interesting cultural moment because these stars that are in the book, I think, are on the decline. Yeah. They were very much this, like, Obama-era, 
embrace of feminism, like late 2000s, early 2010s. And right now, there's, I think, a vacuum of white celebrity. White. White celebrity. Yeah. There's no huge white star right now. White female star. Jennifer Lawrence doesn't count. She isn't, you know, she like had a flop, huge flop. <laughs> and you know, she'll how, never when's recover. The time, when's the last time you heard something about Jennifer Lawrence? Uh, yeah, okay. And Taylor Swift is MIA in part yeah, because yeah. lots of people think she voted for Trump. Although um, MIA is MIA. Yeah, she's also MIA. Yeah. But I think like right now, the avatar of white womanhood is actually Ivanka. And Ivanka is someone that half of this country embraces and half of this country forcefully rejects. So we're in an interesting place of tension right now. This is, here's my Ivanka take. She is the exact Venn diagram of Sheryl Sandberg plus Gwyneth Paltrow's, is it Gloop or Goop? Goop. Goop, Sandberg, plus Trump, everything that's the Trump yes. universe. That's yes. exactly what she is. Yes, yes. And she's, I don't even understand what Lean In is. I think it's, she's obviously very accomplished, but there's an amount of bullshit to it. Same with Gwyneth Paltrow. And then you got the Trump amount of right. bullshit that is probably overwhelming everything else. But Right. Well, yeah. the, the commonality with all of oh, those she, things. Oh, she exemplifies that theory. I mean, she yeah. is it. Yeah. And she, like, the commonality is all those things are all about a certain type of white woman, which is like an upper class or upper middle class white woman. I think we're in a moment of recoil from those that public embrace of feminism. And, you know, the thing about feminism is always two steps forward, one step back. And so we're in the step back right now. But that means we're going to be moving forward again. That was Anne Helen Peterson. Her new book is Too Fat, Too Slutty, Too Loud. She'll be back tomorrow to discuss not the landscape of Lena Dunham, but the American West, Big Sky Country. She's been dispatched by BuzzFeed to Montana to cover the political situation there. Will Greg Gianforti's sluttiness be called into question? You will have to tune in to hear. And now the spiel, the score is in and progress, people, progress. Remember that first house healthcare bill, the one that never came to a vote? The CBO said that would deprive 24 million people of healthcare over the next decade. Then version two, the one that passed and got a rose garden ceremony, that number plummeted to 23 million people. That is a decrease of 4.2%. And then the Senate tinkered with the bill. A very different version of what the House passed, right? And so now we have that scoring from the CBO. Listen to this. 22 million more Americans would not be insured under this bill by the year 2026. The House bill represents a decrease in percentage terms of 4.35%. And guess what? If they save another million people from losing their health care, like, say, McConnell pulls this bill before the proposed vote on Friday... Then the difference from 22 million to 21 million, that will be 4.5%. See how percentages work? It's amazing. The improvements keep on coming. I'm sure the CBO will be demonized in all this. The White House's official Twitter feed already is at it. Even before this report came out, it tweeted, the CBO said 23 million would be covered in 2017. Only 10.3 million people are covered. They were off by 100%. Okay, off by 100% would mean zero. You, you get how 100% works. You understand percentages. I'm trusting your word over the CBO. Anyway, that is the trick with numbers about healthcare. You can't go by the numbers. I think that's what they're trying to tell us. It's about the people. It really is about the people. The people 
who fear they will lose coverage. They're sure to descend on the halls of Congress to have their opinions heard. The plan, as I said, is to vote on the bill by the end of the week. So those people will have a lot less time to be heard than, say, pharma or healthcare lobbyists. But, you know, they hope it's enough time. They hope they have enough time. Depends on how long their healthcare lasts. But let's get back to people, because that is really what it seems healthcare is about. People. People named Donald or Barack or Hillary. We can improve Obamacare if you stop doing this repeal, which is Trump care, highly unpopular with the American people. You know, before it was called uh, Obamacare, it was called Hillary care. It seems in order to make health care unpopular, you just name it after the president, who in America is always unpopular. Hillary in that quote was pretending that Obamacare was a name that helps the bill's popularity. It didn't, not at the time. The name drove down ratings. Huh, life-saving surgery performed by a top surgeon? Sure, I'll take that. Wait, it's called Obamacare? Spit it out, spit it out! Because of this very mature, well-thought-out reaction, I figure we've only got one chance if we're ever going to pass a healthcare reform that won't cause vast protests. We've got to name it after the right person, a very specific person. And this person has got to run for office, craft the legislation, step forward and say, fine, if you want to name the health care bill after me, be my guest. The name of that person is Bill Health. I found two of them. There's a William Health in Tarboro, North Carolina, and a Bill T. Health in Bloomington, Indiana. And once you name the health care bill after Bill Health, then and only then will it have a chance. Oh, so you guys who devised the Bill Health health care bill, you're trying to shove your Bill Health health care bill down our throats. I guess so. That doesn't sound so nefarious. I mean, it's a health care bill. Let's name it after Bill Health, right? Health comma bill. I can live with that. But if we go back to the actual CBO numbers, remember, there was a proposal, never came to a vote. It would have left $24 million uninsured. It was scuttled. That happened all at the end of March. The bill eventually passes the House. That bill leaves $23 million uninsured. That happened in May. This is the end of June. This Senate bill will leave $22 million uninsured. I've worked this out, and it turns out that the Republicans could come up with a plan that takes away health care from fewer than $10 million. And when they hit that plan, Around 2019 or 2020, they will be in fine shape to hold the House in the 2018 midterms. Until then, what can I tell you? Find Bill Health, run him for Congress, name your bill after him. It's the only thing that's going to work. And that's it for today's show. A lower court struck down just producer Chris Berube's decision to bake a cake for the Universal Church of Satan using angel food. The Supreme Court will allow to stay in place... Just producer Mary Wilson's desire to stay in place. It is a victory for the stationery. I was quite moved by her staying in place. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast, in a 5 to 4 decision, decided to lower the volume of his Alexa speaker from 5 to 4. The gist. We find that a religious group can build playground equipment with taxpayer dollars so long as the teeter-totter is open on Shavuot. Oomperu, depru, dupru, and thanks for listening.